This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. A challenging scripture for many Christians is James 1, verse 2, that says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Our response might be, well, give me reasons that I should have joy in this time of suffering. Once again, we can turn to the Psalms for insight. Our speaker, Rev. Mark Ray, will take us through Psalm 16 for help in finding the joy we so desperately need through difficult times. Mark is the Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and also the Executive Director of our Grace Center for Spiritual Development. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Let's listen now to Mark Ray's message, Joy in the Journey. There are two types of people in the world. There's a type of person that wakes up and says, Good morning, Lord. And there's a type of person that wakes up and says, good Lord, it's morning. Right? Which one are you? Good morning, Lord, or good Lord, it's morning. Why? Why are there two types of people that have that kind of reaction, that have that kind of response? Well, my... My thought this morning is that it all hinges around a little three-letter word, the word joy. That little three-letter word that some of us take to heart and others don't, that some of us recognize what it's all about and some of us don't. Listen to how Webster's defines it, and then we're going to see how the Younger's Bible Dictionary defines it. Webster's defines it simply as this, joy is gladness or exhilaration of spirits or to exalt. Eh, That kind of does it, but listen to how Unger's Bible Dictionary defines says it, and it's going to come up on the screen so you can actually see it. This is the definition that Unger's Bible Dictionary puts out there. A delight of the mind arising from the consideration of a present or assured possession of a future good. It's a great definition. Let me break it down into the three statements that this definition makes of the word joy. First, it's a delight of the mind. Meaning, it's something we can choose to have because it's something we can wrap our heads around. It's not this ethereal thing that sits out there and says, you can't have it, you can't understand it, but it's of the mind, which means we can actually grasp it, get our minds around it, and we can actually choose joy. Second, it's a consideration of a present or assured possession, meaning It's based on thinking about or considering something that we already possess. Not necessarily something material, but something that we already possess, something that we already have, something that we we have currently right now in front of us. And we think about that, we consider it, 
And third, it is a future good. It is something that affects us not only now, but something that affects us in the future. Joy, something we can wrap our heads around, something we can choose, something that's a consideration of something we currently possess, and something that's not only for now, but for the future. Isn't that a great definition? Listen to how Chuck Swindoll puts it. I love this. I know of no greater need today than the need for joy, unexplainable, contagious, outrageous joy. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound great? Isn't that something you want? Unexplainable, contagious, outrageous joy. I'm going to embarrass him here, but I'm going to hold up a guy by the name of Dave Doppert. If anybody you are greeted by him when you come in the door, that's a guy that exudes, right? He exudes unexplainable, contagious, outrageous joy. And I love talking with the guy because it just exudes from him. I'm not going to point him out because he'd be embarrassed by that. But that's one of those guys that you look at and you go, man, he's got something going on. It sounds great. And so what we want to look at in Psalm 16, what we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 16 is going to lay out the possessions that we currently have that can lead us to wrap our brains around how we can choose joy. It's a really incredible psalm. Swindoll continues and he says this, there is nothing better than a joyful attitude when we face the challenges that life throws at us. The perspective of coming to the challenges of life with joy can completely overhaul how, we, how they affect us and how we affect them. Joy for the here and the hereafter. That's where we're going this morning. We're going to take a look at Psalm 16. Now, here's a little bit of background on Psalm 16, just so you've got it. We don't have a lot of history on Psalm 16, but obviously, from the very beginning, from the first verse, we know that David, who wrote this psalm, was in some kind of trouble. There was some kind of opposition. There was some kind of persecution that was coming on David. So he's writing this psalm about joy in the midst of where he was, which was a difficult struggle. We don't necessarily know what that struggle is, but it was tough. And so we begin looking at the journey that David is on, this journey of life in which he finds joy. And we're going to look at this morning six possessions that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, six possessions you already have that allows you to be able to consider joy and how to respond to it. Turn with me. Psalm 16. We're going to look at chapter, uh, Psalm 16. We're going to look at the first two verses. Starts off in the superscription with this little word called a mictum of David. We have no idea what that is, what that word means. Scholars have debated that forever. I talked with our Hebrew scholar, Matt Montgomery. He said, I've never even heard the word. A mictum, it's only used here and with five other psalms, but we think it means a musical cue, that it's something that David was giving to the music director. We've seen in a number of psalms, he talks about this is to the choir director, these are to be sung. And so this is a mictum of David. It's something that he has written to be sung And this is probably a musical cue. There's another scholarship that says he may have written this while he was in Gath, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, while he was feigning to be insane in the middle of that. But here it is, a mictum of David. So let's start. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and look at the first possession that we have. Read with me together. Preserve me, O God. This is together. 
audience participation. Here we go, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. So here we go. The first possession that we have, David lays out this initial word that he says, preserve me, O Lord, literally give me shelter, hide me, watch over me. The first possession that we have is we have a refuge. And by the way, all six of these are going to start with the letter R so we can remember them. The first here is that God gives us a refuge in him. Through the work of Christ on the cross, we have access to the Father who gives us a refuge in him when times are troubled. And here David says, give me that shelter. Have that shelter over me. In fact, the word that he actually uses, the phrase he actually uses here has been translated... You see it in Psalm 91, verse 4, where it talks about a a bird that gathers its chicks under its wings, that we would run under the wings of the mother bird to be collected, to be preserved, to be protected, the shelter of the mother. And we see Jesus even make this reference when he looks at Jerusalem right before he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he, he weeps for Jerusalem and says, oh, that I might, like a mother hen, gather her chicks under my wing. It's the same statement. It's the same phrase. It's the same idea. That we have a place to run and a place to hide and a place to be in refuge with God. He then goes on to say that you are my Lord, that the refuge is actually in God himself, and that I have nothing good apart from you, that everything that's good comes from you, including the fact that I have a refuge in you. It's been said this, love this statement. Joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence today. Isn't that a great statement? Joy is the flag that flies over us when the king's in residence. Is the king in residence in your heart? Do you have the king? Is he at home today? Is he at home with you today? Do you have a refuge? Do you have a place to go in the midst of trouble? Possession number one, we have a refuge. Possession number two, let's read verses three and four together. Verses three and four together. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. This is a great one. This second possession that we have, this second possession is you and me. It's the saints. It's the believers. It's the righteous ones. There's the letter R. It's the righteous ones, the ones who have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. The second possession that we have is we have the righteous ones. We have each other. We have the believers in Jesus Christ. You are the provision that God has made for somebody else. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, don't forsake the assembling together. Instead, we are to to gather together to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We come together here to stir one another up, to encourage one another, to be in the midst with one another, to be a joy to one another. And what David says here is, it's the saints who are on the earth. These are the excellent ones. These are the ones in whom I delight. I delight in the other believers. We have been brought together as believers because of the work of Jesus Christ that we just celebrated here. 
Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we now have fellowship one to another with each other. And David says, that's excellent. And that's where my delight is, in you. Melissa and I just got back, well, two weeks ago, just. We just got back from a trip in which we went to Dallas to visit our younger son and his wife, and then to Houston to visit our older son, his wife, and our granddaughter. It was a great trip, encompassed 1,500 miles over about four and a half days. It was a great trip. And when we were in Dallas, we got a chance to see some old high school friends that are believers, and it was a delight. It was a joy to be in the midst of people that we shared a history with. We shared knowing how they had come to Christ together. We shared that common bond. And then when we went down to Houston, we got a chance to go to a wedding in which we were with a fellowship group of people that we'd been in a small group with for years. And the joy that was there about us being in the midst of these believers was incredible. And I have to tell you something. We were driving back. We've now been here about seven months And we're kind of in that, Melissa describes it as that no man's land, where we don't quite belong back where we came from, but we're just beginning to belong here, but we're not really fully engaged here. You know what I mean? You're kind of in no man's land. You're not really a full resident in either place. You haven't had enough time. Not enough time has gone by yet. But I will tell you the one thing that continued to bring us joy was coming back to you. Not to Midland. You understand that. (laughs) But it was coming back to you. You are the excellent ones. You are the ones in whom we delight. You are the ones who are the righteous ones that bring joy. Amen? Just so we lock this in, just so we get this, I want you to do something. Yes, this is Mark. He's going to go off on a whim here. But I, I want you to do something. Because you are the joy to one another as well. I want us to stand, and I want you to go find somebody that has meant something to you, that has brought joy to you, and let them know right now, you have brought joy to me. You are an excellent one. You are a righteous one. You are the one that David talks about that has brought me joy. Stand and go hug on somebody and tell them, you are the one that brought me joy. You brought me joy, brother. You really have. You have brought me joy. And you too, my brother. Yeah, you brought me joy. Thank you for your smile. Okay, okay, okay. That's enough of all that joyful stuff. I get you to take a seat. It's okay. Tom Hinton just told me I lost control, and that's okay. We're in the middle of joy. Wasn't that great? Doesn't it just feel good to tell somebody that you mean that to me? That's what David's talking about here, about the excellent ones who have brought me joy. Possession number two is the righteous ones. That's you. 
Possession number three, let's go down to, we're going to read verses five and six together. Five and six together. Here we go. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. This next one is the possession that we have, which I'm calling a reward. We have an inheritance because of Christ. David was talking very specifically about coming out of 2 Samuel 7. He's talking about the reward that he had, which was what God had set him up for in the Davidic, the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, where he says, David, out of you will come a forever kingdom with a forever king. And he de- defines it this way. He's giving us a very specific geographic term because he's talking about lots and places and lines. He's talking about a very definite boundary. Now, David, being the king, owned a lot of property. But what David is saying is, God, you are the one. You are the one who is the reward. In you is my inheritance. And we, because of what Christ has done on the cross, we enter into that inheritance. So what we have been given is an inheritance in the Lord because of Christ. We've been given a reward. It's an incredible thing that that God has done for us out of grace. Did we deserve it? Can we earn it? Can we buy it? Not by any way, shape, or form. But we have it simply because of what Christ has done. We enter into that inheritance. We enter into that reward, eternal life. We enter into that place where God takes care of the future of what we've got going on. He's looking at the one who brings us that reward and that inheritance. And it's good. He defines it both as a physical place and also a spiritual place. And that's, that's the next one that we get, the next possession that we have here, and that is that we have a reward. Amen? Because of Jesus Christ, we have this reward. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, We've learned that joy is more than a sense of the comic, more than earthly pleasures, and to a believer even more than what we call happiness. Joy is the enjoyment of God and the good things that come from the hand of God. If our new freedom in Christ is a piece of angel food cake, then joy is the frosting. If the Bible gives us the wonderful words of, uh, words of life, then joy supplies the music. And if the way to heaven turns out to be an arduous, steep climb, joy sets up the chairlift. Isn't that great? What we're given is this reward that is tangible, it's real, and it's there for you in Christ. There is a reward. So now we've got a refuge, and we've got the righteous ones, and we've got a reward. It's getting pretty good, isn't it? These are reasons, these are possessions that we currently have, and they're reasons for joy. Here's the fourth. Verses 7 and 8. Read this one with me. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be moved. I'm calling this one joy in the rock. This is the rock, the foundation on which everything is built, that we have the wise counsel, the wisdom from the Lord, that wisdom coming from the one who is omniscient. Isn't that a great place to have wisdom come from? The one who knows it all? What a great place to get wisdom from. And it's offered to us. David says, I bless the Lord who has given me this counsel, this wise counsel. How many times have you needed wise counsel? And the Lord says, it's there, it's yours. And I'll say it again because of what Christ has done. It's open and it's accessible to us. We have that wise counsel in front of us. He goes on and he says, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, he's saying, as I'm going on the path of life, what's always straight in front of me is the Lord. 
He's where my focus is. That's where the wise counsel comes from. And then he says, he is at my right hand. The position of power and authority, David says, the Lord is the one who's at the position of power and authority. And because of that, because of that rock in my life, I will not be moved. The foundation on which all exists, the wise counsel of the Lord that comes to me, he and my focus and he at my right hand, my power and authority, that makes me unmovable. That's what the journey of life is all about. Chuck Swindoll says this. This is a great one. He says, wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. Isn't that great? The wisdom of the omniscient one, the wisdom of God himself is what comes to us and gives us the ability to see certain aspects of life or to see life itself from a new perspective, from a unique perspective, and to be able to handle it Because the rock is at the center of it. Because the wise counsel of the Lord is there. So, the fourth one we get here, the fourth one that is to us, the fourth possession we have is we have the rock. It's a great one to put your foundation in. Now comes the biggie. (laughs) Verses 9 and 10, read this one with me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is the biggie. And here it is. It's one of the reasons why the Sadducees had such a difficult time in the New Testament time period believing in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't, and they said they can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. Here it is. Psalm 16, verse 10. This is the resurrection. And what David is saying here is, my heart is glad. He starts this with therefore, and he says, because I have a refuge, because I have the righteous ones, because I have a reward, and because I have the rock, therefore my heart is glad, my glory or my character, the inside of me rejoices because I have all these things. That's the inside, and that's now been taken care of. The inside stuff is good, but now he says something's got to happen on the outside, and he says, my flesh also rests in hope. The outside of me rests in hope. You've taken care of the inside, now you're taking care of the outside. And then he says this, For you, Lord, will not leave my soul in Sheol. You won't leave my soul in the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Nor you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, there are scholars who say at David's time period, this might have been a point in which David was seeing a situation in which he might have been killed, and so he he was asking God or he was seeing God delivering him from that. But this is also David the prophet And David the prophet giving us this prophetic statement. Prophetic statement is repeated again in Acts chapter 2. And I want to read Acts chapter 2. This is Peter at Pentecost. He quotes this exact statement, verses 9 through 11. And Peter says this, For David says this concerning Christ. And then he quotes this passage. And then he says this in verse 29 of chapter 2. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor would his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. What Peter does is he brings that prophetic statement from David back 
hundreds of years before and brings it into the reality, the historical reality in Christ Jesus. And he says, this resurrection happened in Christ. And the reason it's a possession to us is because if it happens for Christ, it's going to happen for those in Christ. So those in Christ, we have the hope, in the, the hope of the flesh that it will be resurrected. The hope that we will be resurrected. Why? Because Christ was. Because God made the promise to David, and that promise carries through to us. And that is that he will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He will not allow his Holy One's soul to remain in the grave. That the resurrection is here. It's for you and me, and it's one of those incredible promises of hope that should bring joy eternal. We see the resurrection, and it's a biggie. Paul also reflects it in Acts chapter 13 where he says the same thing. He quotes verse 10b, and he says, the Lord will not allow his Holy One, Jesus Christ, to see corruption. So we take this prophetic statement and we move it forward. Harry Pritchett, Jr., (laughs) he told a story in Leadership Magazine back in 1985. He had a young friend. His young friend's name was eight years old, and his young friend's name was Philip, and Philip was born with Down syndrome. Philip had a rather normal life for his eight years that he was on the earth. He was a little different, but that was okay. He had a lot of laughter, a lot of smiles. There was a lot of good things about Philip, and In the spring of his eighth year, he went to the Methodist Sunday school class, and he joined a class of nine eight-year-olds, boys and girls, and his differences began to be noticed a little bit. And Pritchett said he would watch him as what would happen was he would play with the other kids, and they laughed and they played together, and he was in the group but not quite accepted because of his differences. And the eight-year-olds didn't quite know what to deal, how to deal with Philip, and so he was a little bit of an outcast, but he was a little bit in. He was kind of in that strange place. Well, this particular Easter that came up, and the Sunday school teacher gave them a, an assignment. He had gone out, and he'd gotten those... Remember the eggs that pantyhose came in? I don't know why I'm looking at the guys. <laughs> you remember those eggs that the pantyhose came in? Okay, yeah. He went out and got 10 of them, and he passed them around the class, the nine kids plus Philip, and he said, here's your assignment. I want you to run outside, and I want you to bring back a symbol of new life. Bring back a symbol of new life. And they, he opened the door, and it was like chaos outside the church. And they ran here and there and started collecting things and pulling things together, came back in, and the teacher began to open the eggs one by one. And in one was a flower, and the class went, ooh. And another one was a butterfly, and the class went, ah. And one was a rock, and that was kind of a strange one until the boy in the back said, that's mine, and it, it shows that I'm different, and different is a sign to me of new life. They went, okay. And then there was one that he opened, and there was nothing inside. And the class went, well, that's no fair. Whoever this is, they didn't do the assignment. And Philip said, it's mine. I did do the assignment. And they said, no, you didn't. There's nothing in it. You didn't do the assignment. He said, I did. I did the assignment. It's empty because the tomb is empty. And the place went silent. And Pritchett said a miracle occurred that day. After that, Philip was accepted as one of the group. Well, later that summer, an infection came upon Philip. 
And most normal children would have survived this. They would have shrugged it off as just a cold, but because of his weakened state, because of his Down syndrome, it took Philip's life. He died at the end of the summer. And at the funeral, Pritchett said there were nine eight-year-old kids that came up to the casket. And they didn't have flowers that would cover up the stark reality of death. There were nine eight-year-old kids and a Sunday school teacher that came up to that coffin and they laid on the coffin an empty egg. They laid on that coffin an empty, discarded, broken-down egg. The tomb is empty, friends. We have a risen Savior. He is not in the grave. The God of the universe did not leave his soul there. His body did not rot in the grave. He is alive and we serve a risen Savior. He is here. He is alive. That egg was, was proof positive that Jesus Christ is alive and the tomb is empty. You want a possession that you have right now for joy? He's alive. The tomb is empty. Amen. So now we've got the refuge, the righteous ones, the reward. Do you remember the next one? The rock and the resurrection. Let's look at the final one. Verse 11. Read this with me. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This final one is joy in the rich life. The rich life. Jesus said that I came, you, that, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. And what he offers to us is this rich, full, abundant life. And listen to what David says. He says, you, Lord, will show me the path of life. In this journey, you're going to show me where that joy is in life. He says, that joy in life is in your presence. That's where there's fullness of joy. In the presence of Christ is fullness of joy. That's where it is. And then he says, at your right hand, that place of power and authority are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. What we have in Christ is this rich, full life that is full of joy because the king is in. Hmm. Six possessions that we have. Six possessions that we have. Say them with me. They're in your bulletin. You can pull them out. You can use your cheat sheet and look. Six possessions that we have. Say them with me. We have joy in refuge. We have joy in the righteous ones. We have joy in the reward. We have joy in the rock. We have joy in the resurrection. And we have joy in the rich life. Now say it one more time with me like you mean it. First, we have joy in the refuge, right? We have joy in the righteous ones. We have joy in the reward. Love kids being here. We have joy in the rock. We have joy in the resurrection. And we have joy in the rich life. Think of it this way. We have joy in the refuge because we have a place to go. We have joy in the righteous ones because we have people to be with. We have joy in the reward because we have an inheritance. 
We have joy in the rock because we have the incredible counsel of God, the omnipotent one. We have joy in the resurrection, the hope that, that because Christ is risen, so will we. And we have joy in the rich life, the promise of Christ that in me you can have rich life now and forever. I want to conclude with this little acrostic. This little acrostic, it's going to go up on the screen here, and you're going to see it. You see the word there? J-O-Y. The word is joy. We've been talking about it this morning, and you may have heard it put this way. Put up the next one, would you there, Jeff? The next one is, you may have heard it this way, Jesus first, others second, and you third. That that's what brings joy. Jesus first, others second, and you third. But there was, a, there was a pastor in a little town in Wisconsin that made this switch on that, and he put this up here. It's this. The J-O-Y means Jesus, and then a zero, and then you. And what he said was this. Joy is when nothing comes between you and Jesus. When nothing comes between you and Jesus. So think about this for a minute. What has been provided to us? What are the possessions that have been provided to us? First, we've been given a refuge. You've got a situation and a circumstance that's keeping you from being intimate and keeping you from being in relationship with Christ. You've got a refuge and a place to go that takes care of that. You have a situation in which you need joy. You've got, you're surrounded by the saints, the excellent ones who bring that delight to your heart and can point you to Christ. You have an inheritance. You don't have to worry about the future. It's taken care of. That doesn't have to be a worry on your head because that has been taken care of and so that's not anything that keeps you from Christ. You have the rock. You have the wise counsel that can continue to point you back to Christ time and time and time again. You have the resurrection. Nothing, even your own death, can keep you from Christ. And finally, you have the rich life, Christ here and Christ forever. Six incredible possessions right now that will help you stay connected to Christ. Joy is when nothing keeps you from Christ. So consider this. There is joy in the refuge. There's joy in the righteous ones. Join the reward, join the rock, join the resurrection, and join the rich life. Consider that. What joy. You have been listening to Mark Ray. Mark has given us six very good reasons from Psalm 16 to be joyful today, no matter our circumstances. I pray your heart has been encouraged. Perhaps you have friends or family who would also be encouraged by this series on Songs of Praise. Please share our podcast. In addition, we are making available to you a free study guide of the entire series, which would be great for personal or small group study. Download your free copy today at gsot.edu forward slash songs. That's gsot.edu forward slash songs. Aren't you glad you tuned in today? Always remember the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash saving grace. 
Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.